0: Paul writes in Romans 1 that uh, God has revealed himself to all humanity in such an undeniable way that through the things that God has made, he's revealed not only that he exists, but he also reveals uh, to us what he is like. So what, what Paul's saying is that looking at creation itself, you can see things that point to him. So, we can see what God is is like in His glory and His majesty and His beauty and His splendor. But I would also argue that uh, in the fallen aspects of nature, we also see what God is not like. Uh, So, if you would remember back with me to uh, your middle school science class, and uh, maybe remember or try, or let me remind you of what you've forgotten about ecological relationships from your middle school science class how do organisms that God created relate to one another, right? You look at nature and you see a couple of ways. One is competitive, right? There, there's competition within nature, and that's where two or more organisms are competing against one another for, for something like food or, or shelter or water, right? Competitive relationships. We also uh, look at, uh, at, at, at nature and we see predatory relationships, where one organism eats another organism. And depending on where they are in the food chain, they themselves might be food for another organism. But predatory relationships. There's also symbiotic relationships. In symbiotic relationships, there's three different kinds. There's, There's mutual relationships where two species or two organisms, they both benefit from one another, from their relationship with one another, mutual relationship. Then there's commensurate relationships where one species benefits from the other the other doesn't benefit, but it's not harmed. Not harmed. Lastly, there are these uh, the these uh, sorry parasite relationships, parasitism, right? Uh, parasites. So, like with a mutual relationship, you could think of an example of like a sea anemone and a clownfish, and uh, an anemone an uh, provides protection for the clownfish. The clownfish provides nutrients for the anemone. But in parasites, think flea, right? Think tick, Uh, think leech, think mosquito, right? We're we're at that season in, in Ohio, right? Where it's time to break out the bug spray because the mosquitoes are coming. And if you haven't been bit already, right? And, and, and the mosquito, uh, that, uh, mosquitoes love me for some reason, and, 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 and they take, but they give nothing in return but itchiness and a welts. That's, that's a parasite, right? The definition of a parasite is an organism that takes from, from a host and, and does harm to the host when he takes what it takes from it, right? That's a parasitic kind of relationship. Now, when we look at, at human relationships, are human relationships at all like those we see in nature? Do we see competitive relationships, right? Yeah, we we compete over over resources from from nations to to our own neighbors. Who's got the best lawn competitions, right? We we have uh, predatory relationships. We may not consume each other like cannibals, but we do kill each other. And as scripture says, we do devour one another with our words. And in symbiotic relationships, yes, some of us have, we have good mutual kinds of relationships where there's give and there's take. This commensurate relationships where you you give, but you, you, you aren't hurt in the giving. But what about parasitic relationships? Do we have parasitic relationships? Do we have relationships where we take from somebody else to their harm and detriment? When we look at God, is God like any of this? And what we notice from creation is that God, although we see in his, his, that his creation points to his wisdom and majesty and splendor and glory, we also recognize that God is uncreated, and therefore there are things about God that we won't see in creation. Because he is uncreated, he's not in competition with us. Because he's uncreated, he's not predatory towards us, he's not going to consume us. Because of uh, 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 he is uncreated, he's, he's not in a mutual relationship or a, a, a commensurate relationship or even a parasitic relationship. There is nothing that we have that he needs. Understand that God is self-sufficient. But human beings, parasitic. With that, let's pray, and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Um, the ways that you've revealed yourself to us. Thank you for the ways that you've pointed out what is wrong in our world that needs to be addressed. But most of all, thank you for addressing it through your cross. Thank you for taking what is crooked and making it straight. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this morning, among the lies I want to address, there's two. And the first is that the God of the Bible doesn't really care about the powerless, particularly women. The, the, the God that we see in Scripture, for, for many people, they, they look at the God as revealed, especially in the Old Testament, as a God who doesn't particularly care about the powerless, especially in how women are treated in Scripture. It's important that we understand when we, when we look at the Bible that oftentimes we take something as prescriptive when it's really descriptive. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 3 this morning, and you can turn there now. But in 2 Samuel chapter 3, we see this, this scene unfolding, this, this, this picture. But it's not a picture of the way that God wants things to be. This is not prescriptive. This is not God saying, this is what life should look like. Uh, This is what human relationships should look like. This is how you treat women. This is not a prescriptive passage. It's a descriptive passage of, in fact, the way that we do treat one another. in it's reality and it's harshness and it's rawness and it's brokenness. It's a descriptive passage of the way things are. The second lie to address here is that we're better than the people we read about in Scripture. We've we, we progressed far past them. We're morally superior. We're better than the people that we read about in Scripture. And the truth is that the contexts have changed, and the way things play out will look a little bit differently. The heart behind them all is still the same, and it still needs to be redeemed. So, let's dive in. 2 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, there's 12 men from the tribe of Judah and 12 men from the tribe of of Benjamin and they meet by this pool near Gibeon and, and 12 come out towards one another and they each in this sick, game grab each other by the head and thrust swords into one another's bellies, and they kill each other. They fall down dead together, and this sick game precipitates a civil war. God's people fighting God's people, and, and what, we hear, what we see here in, in chapter 3 verse 1 is this is a long war, but through the process of this war, David is getting stronger, and the house of Saul is getting weaker. And then something happens. Second Samuel, the author of Second Samuel, he, he switches gears, and he writes this, verses 2 through 5. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Chaleb of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmi, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So the, the writer of 2 Samuel, he is interjecting into this narrative discourse about this civil war that's going on in Israel. And he's giving us a picture of David's family. And he's putting this right at the beginning. He's, he's interrupting this story with this sort of parenthetical picture of David's family. And, 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 he, and he's doing this for a specific reason. One, he wants to highlight what's missing. Chapter two began with David inquiring of the Lord, where should I go and live? Should I go up and live in Hebron? God says, go up and live in Hebron. Chapter three begins with David getting married, right? He already has two of these wives. He marries four more in Hebron. What you don't see is David saying, God, who should I marry? And let's just be really clear on this, okay? The, the hierarchy of prayers, when it comes to who, where you should live and who you should marry like who you should marry is on the top. All right? But you see, what we, what we see in David is there's this portion of his heart that remains unsubmitted to God. There's a part of his heart that he will not inquire to God about. He's not going to ask God his opinion about. There's this unsubmitted part of his heart that he's going to hold on to and not give God access to and it has to do with his relationship with women. David did not love women. David did not exemplify what Paul talks about in Ephesians, about husbands laying down your lives for your wife like Jesus. David did not exemplify this. The the other thing that, that he wants to point out is there's six sons by six wives. Whenever you see the number six in Scripture, generally it points to something sinful, it points to human weakness and human failure. This is not something that, that, that God is particularly proud about in regards to David and his choices. Right? But I want us to look at these relationships. Amnon's a firstborn son. We're going to see him in chapter 13. Like his dad, he will cross the line with women. His mom is a Hinoam. Uh, uh, she is of the tribe of Judah. Likely this marriage was about solidifying uh, a political uh, uh, place to stand within the tribe of Judah. This is a tribal connection that David has with, uh, with Ahinoam. The, the second wife is uh, the, the mother of uh, Chiliab. Uh, we don't know much about Chiliab. It's believed he's, he probably dies early on, but his mother is, is Abigail. She was the widow of Nabal. She was beautiful. She was wealthy. That's why he married her. Third, uh, there's Absalom. We're going to read a lot more about Absalom later on. His mom was an Aramean woman, Makah. She was the daughter of a king, uh, King of uh, 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 Gezer. I am going to get that wrong. Anyway, uh, this is a nation outside of Israel, and this is David building a connection, a political connection, a political tie with a neighboring country. Uh, fourth, Adonijah, um, when his three older brothers sort of disappear from the scene, we'll find out why later, um, he believes he's the, the king by hereditary right. Um, that ends miserably for him. But, but his mother is Haggith. And, uh, and scholars believe that based on her name that um, she was a dancer. Uh, she probably provided entertainment at some point for David, and David uh, Liking the, the the show that she put on, decided to take her as a wife for her for her giftedness, her beauty, or whatever. Uh, then comes Shephatiah, whose mother was Abital. Last came ithrium whose mother was Eglah. Now, the last two wives, um, th- th- this was this was a demonstration of power, right? Like being able to put on display how many chariots you have as a king, or how many uh, horses you have as a king, or how big your army as a king, or how many camels or whatever, Um, the number of wives was directly proportionate to your level of power. And these last two two wives, this is what this is about. The, 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 The last wife there, her name is Egla. her name means a heifer, livestock. Do you see? Property. This is, this is what women were to David. Now, this is, it needs to be set over against what we find in the rest of the chapter that we're going to look at. It's particularly the last verse. And this is what David says in the last verse of chapter 3. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And here's what David is do. doing. He's, he's being very hypocritical. He's pointing to somebody else's sin, and he's saying, the Lord repay you for the evil you've done. Meanwhile, turning a complete blind eye and refusing to deal with the unsubmitted parts of his heart and his own wickedness. Now, we'll see that these words here, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness," this is prophetic for him. We will see that, that, that he is undone by the very words he speaks, that the unsubmitted parts of his heart will destroy him. This is prophetic of his own life, but this is also prophetic of something yet to come. That we see at the cross. Let's get back into the the narrative part, verse six. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So David's house is getting stronger. Saul's house is getting weaker, however, Abner within that house is, is rising to the surface. If you remember, Abner was Saul 's uh, commander over the army. Um, after Saul's death, Abner takes Ishbosheth, the fourth son of Saul makes him king, but Ishbosheth is, is weak. He's passive. He's very easily controlled by Abner. Abner gets to rule the country through Ishbesheth. But as Saul's side is weakening, um, Abner, he's, he's beginning to, to rise in, in clout and esteem. However, he's probably looking to jump ship at this particular point as the house of Saul begins to go down the drain. Verse 7 Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. A fault concerning a woman. You can almost hear the disdain. He's, He's insulted. Rizpah was a concubine of Saul. She had two sons by him. We'll see them later in 2 Samuel. But but whether or not uh, Abner actually had a relationship with Rizpah or whether Ishbosheth made that up, it's unclear in Scripture. But regardless, here is one more woman who's being used in a power play between two men. One more woman being used by men in power trying to dominate and control. Verse 9, So God, God do so to Abner and more also. If I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So uh, Abner swears an oath. Because of the way that you've insulted me, I'm done. And I'm going to take uh, the, the clout that I have with our tribal leaders, and I am going to unite these people, and I'm going to form an alliance with David. And ish says he's scared. Why? Because he doesn't have any real power. He's scared. Now, in verses 12 through 21, we see uh, Abner, he reaches out to David. They meet together. He, he says, I-, I want peace. I have the, 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 the clout to bring all the other tribes under your leadership, under your headship, under your kingship. And David says, that's all well and good. But don't come back without my wife. David has a, had a first wife, Michal. Michal was the, the second daughter of, of King Saul, um, and, and her, actually, her older sister was supposed to be David's wife. Um, Saul was supposed to give his, his daughter to the guy who kills Goliath. David killed Goliath, he didn't get the, the, the daughter. But later on, Saul gave Michal in, in marriage to David when David paid the bride price for her. I will let you figure out what the bride price was. But he paid for her. Property. He bought her. She's supposed to be his. Saul, in his anger and jealousy of David, takes McCall back, gives her in marriage to somebody else. David, he's, he's, he's sort of living on the run for a long period of time, but now he's back. He's, he's headed towards the throne, and what does he want? He wants McCall back, and there's some political reasons for this. It, it sort of shows like the house of Saul being unified underneath him, but you got to believe there's some really personal stuff going on here, too. That here's David saying, There's, there's not going to be a wife out there saying that she's the one that got away. I paid for her. She's mine. So we read this in verses 15 and 16. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. You see the collateral damage of what happens. When the powerful take what they want, and the powerless have, have no recourse and no way of stopping. Here's a guy who actually loves his wife, weeping for her as she's taken from him. Well, in verses 20 through 22, David throws a feast for Abner. Um, more than likely, he throws this feast when he knows Joab is, is away. If you remember, Joab was, was David's commander. Um, Abner killed Joab's little brother. Joab would love revenge, um, but he he probably plans this while Joab is away. He throws his feast for for Abner. Then he sends Abner away in peace to go do and accomplish what he said he was gonna do. He's gonna unite all these tribal leaders under David and then come and make him king. Joab comes back, finds out what's happened, and, and accuses uh, David of believing a lie, like Abner's a spy. He's not, he's not coming to help. He's not coming to unite. He's coming to destroy us, and, and, and we need to understand that there's two things at stake for Joab. One, he wants revenge for the death of his little brother, but two, Abner's more than likely about to take his place as the commander over the army. Joab is about to lose his honor, his, his place of power and control. There's a lot at stake for Joab. So Joab calls after Abner, has him come back, meets him in the gate of, of, of Hebron, and he kills him. He kills Abner out of revenge and, a, and out of a, a desire to maintain his control of power. Well, uh, now the, the, the issue is, well, can, can unity be had? This alliance that Abner was going to be the crucial guy in, in making hap- happen. Like, well, what's going to happen with that? And so David, in response, he's decided he's going to throw the biggest funeral that he can in order to honor Abner. Big, fancy funeral in order to honor Abner. And one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to, um, he's going to curse Joab. We read this in verse 29 may it fall upon the head of joab and upon all his father's house and may the house of joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread this is pretty pretty bad this is a curse on joab and then he shames him by making joab walk in front of the 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 funeral buyer as as david walks behind it loudly lamenting and everybody sees the show that david is putting on and they know david is innocent of abner's murder and so he's able, through this fancy funeral, to, to maintain the alliance that things are, are headed toward. But the, the chapter ends like this, verse 39, I was gentle today, this is David saying, I was gentle today, though anointed king, these men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. I was gentle. Now what's really interesting about this is the chapter before, uh, somebody uh, says they murdered somebody, and David's response to that was to, Execute him, and the chapter that's going to come next, somebody's going to come forward and say, you know, they they killed somebody thinking this is good news for David, but he, David sees it as murder. What does he do? He execute them. And here Joab, he is executed, Abner, or murdered Abner, but he's not executed by David. He's shamed, he's cursed, but David keeps Joab alive because he's still useful to him. Next verse the Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. David's pointing the finger at Joab. He's wicked. I'm gentle. He's wrong. I'm right. But the author of 2 Samuel made sure to put in the detail of, of David's family, putting it there for us to see, and it's foreshadowing of things to come because David will commit murder because of the way he views women. This is, of course, foreshadowing of his, of his own uh, demise, but it's also pointing us towards the cross. Now, essentially what David is doing here is, is he's acting parasitically. David's a parasite. Remember, the definition of a parasite is an organism that uses and harms another organism. David is acting in a parasitic way. And and you might look at that and say, whoa, 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 this is David. This is God, a man after God's own heart, right? Like, you can't call him a parasite. Look, the reality is, is is David, at his best, he, he points us to the greatness of Jesus and what Jesus is like. But at his worst, he points us to how badly we need Jesus. David is not our example to follow. Jesus is our example to follow. He points us toward Jesus, now, there's two lies I said we're addressing here. One, that, that God doesn't care about, especially women, as seen in the Old Testament. And the second is that we're better than the people in this story. And so to help maybe change our beliefs, uh, have a little exercise for us. Uh, on the inside of each row, there are some pieces of paper and, and some pens, and I'm, I am guessing by the the, the largeness of, of the crowd this morning i didn 't get enough pieces of paper or pens, but if you would pass those down, you may have to share pens. you may have to use the note uh, page on your your, uh, your phone but here 's what i 'm going to ask you to do i 'm going to ask you a series of fifteen questions and, and these all have to do with the ways that we use people, the ways that we use people now. What I want you to do in response to these questions, I don't want you to write down yes or no. I don't want you to write down whether you're guilty of this or not. I want you to write down the names. The names, the specific names of people that you have used in this way. The names are important and we'll see why here in a second. Now, um, our tendency will be to say, yeah, I'll do this later. This is really, I'll take some notes and I'll do this later. And the reality is, is you won't. We won't do it later. Um, I will put the questions up on the Facebook group page so that you can see them a little bit more later in case you miss any, but I challenge you to do this now. And here's the reason why. David had a part of his heart that was unsubmitted to God. David had a part of his life that he refused to look at, that he, he refused to address, And as a result of that, the unsubmitted part of his life would destroy him. As devastating consequences for his relationships, but the unsubmitted part of David's life would destroy him. Let's not allow that to happen. So here's some some questions. Here's here's the first one. Who is someone you've used to, to either gain approval or keep from losing it? with the people in your life that you want that person's approval or you have that person's approval and you're afraid of losing it. And maybe that's, maybe that's a boss. And if you're, you're really, uh, if, you're, if you're really looking at your heart in regards to this individual, like you don't actually love your boss, but you do want your boss's approval. You want their approval. You don't really care about them. On the other hand, it, it may be somebody like your spouse and you need your spouse's approval. And as a result of, of needing it, you hide sin from them. Whose approval do you need? Second, who is someone you have used to succeed or used to prevent failure? Whose back have you stepped on in order to win? Who have you thrown under the the bus after you've failed? Who have you used in this way? Third, who is someone you have used to get money, material wealth, or to prevent its loss? in an effort to, 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 to fill that bank account, in, in an effort to get that thing that you wanted, who have you used in order to get it? Or who have you used in order to keep it? Again, we're not asking about the what. We're asking about the who. Next, who have you used for sexual pleasure or to avoid sexual frustration? Whose body have you used? who you wanted to divorce from their spirit or from their mind. And the reality is is that pornography on the internet enables you to use myriads and myriads of people. But how do you know that that the person on the other side of that lens didn't go home that day and feel utterly and completely used, knowing that thousands upon thousands of people were going to watch what they just did? Who have we used? next who have you used to gain honor respect or to avoid being disrespected do you see people in your life that, that have that, uh, certain gifts and, and you would attempt to appropriate honor from their gifts think about it this way parents do you have a kid who's talented on the playing field or a kid who's talented on the stage and to, to use their gifts in some way you receive the honor for what it is that they do well or, or maybe it's a, a friend who does, who's particularly gifted, and, and by being in close proximity to them, you, you get to share. in that. Or maybe it's, you have a very attractive spouse, and having them on your arm makes you look good. Next. Who have you used for pleasure or to avoid pain? Do you surround yourself with people who make you feel good about yourself? and reject people who point out things in your heart that are wrong. In an effort to feel good about yourself, do you, do you just, the, the people that, that give you the attaboys and the clap you on the back and, the, and show you love, you, you embrace them, but people who will be honest with you and have hard conversations with you about areas of weakness and character or in your life, you cast them off. Next. Number seven, who have you used for entertainment or to avoid boredom? Like, who are your pals? Who are, the, who are the people that you like being around because you share common interests, right? You, you can have fun together. You can watch the game together. You can make jokes together. But these are people who, when it comes to, right down to it, you don't want to serve them. You want, don't want to suffer with them when they're going through difficult times in life, and you will not sacrificially love them. They're pals. But you use them for entertainment. Next, who have you used for marriage or to escape loneliness or heartbreak? Look, marriage is a gift. And God has given it to us in part for loneliness. But we know people, and maybe it's ourselves, who have entered into marriage with somebody, not for what we could give them, but for what we could take from them. Because there was this giant hole in us of loneliness, and we thought that they could fill it. And we've used them. Next. Who have you used in order to feel holy? Look, we we're called to grow in Christ's likeness and be sanctified by the Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus, to pursue holiness. But Phariseeism is really, really easy to fall into. And we can look at some people and say, I want to hang out with them because they're pious and they're, they're prayerful and they're, they're religious and, and they, they, like I want to be hanging out with them and be seen hanging out with them. But there are another group of people that I don't want to be, seeing, be seen with. People that are the sinners, people that are the outcasts, like the taxpayer and the prostitute won't be around those people because if people catch me being around those people, then I won't look holy. Next, who have you used in order to affirm your fleshly cravings? Who enables you to to overindulge? And whether that's with food or whether that's with drink, who is there rooting you on and and helping you overindulge or enabling you to do that? Maybe that's enabling you to do something you shouldn't be doing at all. And some of the volunteer work I do in in the city, I, I come across a lot of couples who have these codependent relationships that are based on their abuse of drugs. They don't love each other. They might even hate each other, but they cling to one another because they enable each other to use. Next. Who have you used in order to appear physically fit or avoid appearing out of shape? Maybe think of comparisons. Maybe having someone in your life that you can point to and say... Well, I may not look like the cover of a fitness magazine, but at least I don't look like that. I don't eat like that. I work out way more than that. My body image. My comparisons. Next. Who do you use to avoid public embarrassment? Public embarrassment is a big fear for a lot of people. And I asked a little while ago about the, the honor, right? Seeking honor and maybe seeing honor as a result of our, of our kids, success in sports or, or music or whatever? What if your kid isn't good at sports, but they like to play anyway? What if your kid isn't good or musical, but wants to pound on the keys anyway? Have you ever withdrawn your kid from something you know that they're not good at because it makes you look bad? Do you have a spouse who likes to do something, and maybe they're not good at it, and you're afraid of what, how the world will see you if they don't live up? embarrassed next who do you use to maintain peace and avoid disorder you like a clean workplace you like a clean home right you like peace and quiet and calm right but to use someone it's your job to keep the kids quiet it's your job to pick up around here this place shouldn't look this way next Who do you use to make you feel strong or powerful? Who are the people in your life that you can control? That you can dominate? That will always listen to you and always do what you tell them to do? Who are the people that that you can have power over? And that makes you feel powerful. And lastly, this is the whole kitchen sink. This is the miscellaneous one. Ask the Holy Spirit. Who isn't on this list that needs to be? We can use each other in a myriad of ways, tons of ways we can use one another. Who's not on that list that should be? The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Does God care about the women in 2 Samuel 3? The answer is yes. And we see it in two ways. One is a passive way. We recognize that The women's names are written. And that's really important. We know their names. In the Old Testament, especially, we see this idea reiterated over and over again that your name shouldn't be blotted out. Your name needs to be remembered. One example of this, 1 Samuel 24, David is hiding in a cave, Saul goes in. And uh, David has the opportunity to kill him. He doesn't. He follows Saul out of the the, the cave, confronts him. Saul says, You're more righteous than I. And then Saul says this to David Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offsprings after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Your name lives, then you live. If your name is forgotten, then you are forgotten. Your name must matter, and it must matter to God. And the, and the point of this is made in Revelation 3, verse 5, where Jesus tells John to write this The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. If your name is in the book of life, then you live forever. And in verse 8, it says this I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus said in Matthew 10, If you confess my name before men, I will confess your name before the Father that your name is remembered. If your name lives, then you live. In a passive way, God is speaking through 2 Samuel 3. These women are remembered by God, but ultimately it's at the cross where we see this. Uh, the, the discipleship groups in, in, in our house church, we going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and there's a couple of lines in there that are, that are repeated. Uh, one is in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And then again in chapter 7, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And there's this picture from Solomon's perspective. A human perspective, living life under the sun, that there are crooked things in this world. There are broken things in this world. And whether it's the result of the fall or whether that's the result of God allowing it to be, there are some broken, messed up stuff. And how is this going to be made right? Perspective under the sun, but it's a perspective that points to the cross where God makes it right in Jesus where justice is meted out in Jesus. Does God care about women? Yes. Are we better than the people in this? Okay, so you don't have multiple wives. Is that, I mean, such a big accomplishment comparing to that list that you have in your hands? We use people. And believe me, I have my list right here. I use people, I have used people we're not better. The question is, is, what do we do in response to this? Where do we go? I want to close our time out this morning by partaking of communion together. We can pass the elements now, but we're going to look at, at something Jesus says in John chapter 6. The beginning of John 6, Jesus has just, he, he feeds 5,000 people miraculously, a handful of fish and loaves. He multiplies, he feeds 5,000 people with this. And then he, he goes away, and the next day, people come following him. They're looking for him. Why? Because they want to use him again for a free meal. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus points it out. You didn't, you're not come following me because you want to see another cool miracle. You're here for a free meal. And you know what? that's okay. But I don't want to just feed you for a day. I want to give you what you need so that you can be satisfied and filled for eternity. And so he says this, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This little piece of bread that you hold in your hand is a symbol of exactly what Jesus is saying here. And he's not saying that we should eat him like cannibals, but he's saying spiritually partake. I've given myself to you. I've given my body over to you. I've taken on flesh and I've lived the righteous life that you can't live. And I go to the cross in order to offer it there on your behalf, in your place. Eat it. And then he takes the cup, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him that little cup, a symbol of his blood, poured out for us. And he says, eat it, drink it. See, we need to understand something, that that what Jesus is saying here is, he's saying, you want to use me, I want you to use me. You're not gonna like this. But what Jesus is saying is he's offering himself as a host for parasites, That hurts, doesn't it? Parasites. The definition of a parasite is an organism that feeds on a host at great cost to the host. And the Son of God takes on flesh. And he lives that righteous life. And he goes to the cross. And there at the cross, he gives you his righteous life. And what do you get in exchange? Or what does he get in exchange? He gets your life of death and shame and guilt and sin. the host suffers and we benefit like parasites. But that's what Jesus is offering and and if we won't submit to that and humble ourselves and embrace that and embrace him for that, then we have no life apart from him. You look at these elements that we hold in our hands. This This is God the Son saying, I'll be your host. Feed off of me. You see, you look at that list of of the people that you've used in order to to fulfill those desires or to avoid those those fears. And here's what Jesus is saying, is that that at the cross, you want approval? Find God's approval because of me. At the cross, you want success, you want to accomplish something, you you want to be great and overcome something? Overcome sin. At the cross, I give you my spirit and you have the power to do it. You want to be honored. You want to be respected. You want to be esteemed. I'll glorify you. I'll seat you next to me in the heavenlies. I will, I will fulfill the, the, those deep longings of your heart. You, you, you want wealth. You want peace. You want pleasure. I'll provide that. And, and, and Jesus isn't talking about you know, some sort of uh, you know, prosperity gospel. But in Christ, when he returns... He will fulfill all of those things that we have used people in order to get. And Jesus is simply saying, Don't use them, use me. Use me. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and you, you get to partake of communion. And I would ask you that before you do, you look at that list. Look at the people that you've used and take that to the cross, take that to Him. Does he care about women? Yes. Are we better than the people in Scripture? Absolutely not. But at the cross, can we find mercy and grace for the way that we use people? Yes. Jesus is a different and better king and that he doesn't gain his power from using us. He's glorified by what he has done for us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth that your gospel points to. God, help us to see our great need. Give us open eyes to see the reality of our lives and the way that we actually treat people. Help us to see your glory and your holiness and your perfection and your love. Help us to see the vast disparity that exists between who you are and who we are. To embrace you to use you, but in using you, find we love you because how great a love did you pour out for us through your son. Help us to overcome our pride and not be afraid to see what's in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.